So you're a professor at UCSB. In what department? I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Chicana and Chicano Studies. And what does that mean, being an assistant professor? That's such a good question because I had no idea, even though I had many professors, what that meant until I became a professor or was training in graduate school to become one. But it usually means that basically you're trying out to be a professor for many years. And at the end, you go through this process called tenure. And if you get tenure, then they give you your job forever though. And if you don't get tenure, you have to leave that university and go find another job. So it's kind of like a probationary period. Um, usually it's six years and you are an assistant professor during that time. And then if you get tenure, you become an associate professor. And then after that, you have to write another book and publish more articles or teach, get really awesome teaching evaluations and do service and get grants. And then you can become a full professor, which means that you're like at the top of the game. Yeah, you definitely seem like you're on your way. Like I was just waiting outside your office, a bunch of like I saw a bunch of like, students come up to you and say how impactful you were, even from different majors being like, wow, I wish I had you earlier in my academic career. Yeah, it was so special today. Um, it's finals week. And so I classes ended last week, but students are coming in, bringing me cards and like uh, sweet gifts and just telling me and asking me questions about graduate school about, you know, some are anxious about graduating and not knowing what to do. So this being my first year at the university, I feel really honored that students have that feeling of not only welcoming me, but being vulnerable and um, just, you know, welcoming me in a way that is very genuine and very caring. Yeah, and keep in mind that they're not even doing um, Chicano studies. They have, they're like, one of them was an, uh, environmental stu uh, studies or environmental science major so like yeah. it's, they they see you as someone they could talk to and me too i was like whoa like she's really awesome oh thank you yeah, yeah i wish that all of you were chicano studies majors so i could you know have you in more of my classes yeah. um but i love that everyone is still open to coming and taking classes in chicana and chicano studies even though they're majors in other departments yeah so what exactly is chicano studies for people that don't know what it is yeah, so Chicano studies is a field of research and study that takes into account the experiences of people who are Chicanas and Chicanos or Chicanexes. And that basically can mean um, in society, most people understand Chicana and Chicano as somebody who's Mexican-American. 
And so since the beginning of this country, borders have shifted so much. Um, we've experienced many things like colonization. We've experienced many governments taking over, you know, these specific lands like where we are in California and where I'm from, which is Arizona. And throughout all of that time, history has changed. Things have happened. Wars have happened. But many of us have lived, you know, along these, these territories. Um, and so the field of Chicana and Chicano studies tries to understand the experiences of Chicano people who um, are deeply tied to the United States, to Mexico, but it also accounts for people who are outside of Mexico, outside of um, North America. It really captures the experience of people who've been colonized, of people who've um, experienced genocide, um, of people who are marginalized, and it centers those experiences through literature, through social science, through art, through um, you know different fields of study. Um, and it came up as a result of fields that are more traditional, like anthropology or sociology, who um, effectively were racist against people of color and people had to create their own spaces where they weren't thought of as deficit or um, like something was wrong with us and instead functioned and started doing research from a place of strength, from a place of of these are, are the things that are beautiful about us or the things that we want to learn more about. Um, so we carved our own space in the university and Santa Barbara, UC Santa Barbara is a special place because this is the first university where Chicano studies was born. Um, students made so many sacrifices like literal hunger strikes and put their bodies on the line to make sure that the university and students like the ones that came to my office today had a space where they could see themselves would be able to talk about the things that mattered to them. And so it's beautiful to be here, even though those hunger strikes and those efforts happened in the late 60s, 70s, and the 80s, and in the 90s, it still matters to us today. Yeah, and what would you say are some of the movements that were the turning point to that point? Yeah, I mean, the civil rights movements were about everybody who um, has been oppressed and marginalized speaking out. We had uh, the women's rights movement, we had the Chicano movement, we had the Black Panther movement, we had so many movements, uh, the anti-war movement really uh, rising up to fight for what people wanted and what, what they didn't want. And one of those movements, like I said, the Chicano movement, came from various fields. Like it wasn't just, um, the academy or students, which the students were a huge part of it with the Chicano walkouts or blowouts where high school students literally were being punished and uh, physically assaulted, like violence upon them when they spoke Spanish. Um, they weren't allowed to take classes that weren't about trade, like they weren't encouraged to go to college. They never learned about their own history. They didn't have professors or teachers who looked like them. And so people stood up for their rights and wanted that to change and made demands and um, walked out of schools. And it was a huge movement all across the U.S. But there were also people fighting for their rights um, in labor. If we think about the United Farm Workers Movement, if we think about Dolores Huerta and Cesar Chavez 
and el teatro campesino really bringing to light the struggles of farm workers. And this happened in many areas of our lives. So it was a time where we were all fighting for a future that we wanted, which to me makes me think about the time that we're living in now. When we think about the things that we are experiencing as a country, it's a similar time, I think, to that, where we are in a battle of imagination, creating our society and the society that we want to live in. Yeah, because in class you showed us a statistic that Latinos, more than anyone, they're not really progressing in higher education. I don't know if it's still to this day. I don't know like uh, how recent the statistic was, but do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I think you're talking about the... Um, the the pipeline of higher education yeah, I think so. for Chicano, Latino, Mexican-American students and uh, among, you know, Latinx groups, um, the distribution of folks who go from middle school to high school and to college, it's basically half percent, half of that um, they drop out or are pushed out of continuing their education. And so by the time, you know, people get into college, finish college, going to a master's or graduate school or a PhD, it's literally less than 1% of people with PhDs are Chicanas and Chicanos. And that is a really sad number. Yeah, it really is sad. Like being from Santa Barbara and you would think this is like should be a good community, like good schools. Me, I don't know if it was because I was in special education growing up. Like I had never knew what an article was no one ever pushed me to apply to college none of the programs at like the high school here nothing and just seeing my brothers and one of my my friends like they're all like oh you should go to school like after high school and I was like wow someone that's not a teacher that's not in the education system is telling me to go to school like there has to be a problem here you know absolutely like it should have been your teachers saying we if you want to go to college we'll make it happen but the fact that it took a community member that to me means that there wasn't care at the school no one was invested in you and it proves that our community has our backs our family has our backs our people that we see on a daily basis those are the people that we should build with and continue to um, fight for each other because we are literally pushing each other to make it even though the school system is the one that is responsible for making sure that as many students as possible do go to college and and live lives that make them happy and fulfilled and healthy um, but that's sadly not the reality. And out of curiosity, um, man, what was the question? This always happens when <laughs> when I think. Oh, what's your background? Like, how did you get to this point of being a professor? Like, what was your ac academic background? You know, it's kind of similar to yours. Like, I never was told to go to college. In fact, I had a teacher who... I, I wanted to go to college all on my own. It was like my own goal when I was a kid. And I think it was because like we grew up really poor and we were undocumented and we lived in the projects. And because of the laws, we couldn't travel or like get jobs and a lot of things in our lives were really messed up. And so I remember thinking like, I need to go to college so that I can <clears throat> change things for my family. 
And I think that kind of gave me an internal motivation. But like you, it wasn't something that was encouraged from my teachers or from the schools. It was kind of community. Me being in like, quote unquote, at-risk youth programs, um, there I found mentors that told me about college, that explained applications to me. But I literally had no idea. I, I thought I couldn't go to college because I didn't have documents. So a university employee came to my high school and gave me an application. And I remember telling him, and it was like an application that you had to fill up by hand. Like it wasn't even on a computer. And he was like, um, you should apply to college. And I told him, I can't. I don't have papers. I wasn't born here. And he was like, you, you should just do the application. And that was literally the only application I filled out. I didn't apply to a single other school. Like, I just didn't even know you could do that. And I got into that school. And I had no idea, like, if I was, how much it cost, like, where. I didn't even know where the school was, you know. And the day of my graduation, my mentor, who's in a theater group that I was a part of, she took me, she literally put me in her car, drove me to across the city in, in Tempe, which is where Arizona State is, and took me to the admin building and asked them, like, does she, she got admitted, what is happening with scholarships, or like, how much does it cost to come here? And they were like, oh yeah, you have a scholarship, like, you, you're good. And I was like, I'm good, I can go to college, like this is really happening. And so I don't know, like if it would have been for that one mentor or that one employee coming to give me that application, I probably wouldn't have applied anywhere. Um, so it's, it shouldn't be that, you know, by chance these things happen, it should be part of this, the system already, you know, that encourages you, that teaches you, that, that ha makes that easy for you to happen. But. Um, yeah, and that's kind of how I got to college. And during college, it became like, I feel like that could be a whole movie because being undocumented in Arizona is really was really tough, especially during that time, because California passed laws to make going to college easier for people who are undocumented, giving them in-state tuition. And Arizona literally was like, let's do the opposite. We're going to make it so hard that you cannot come to college. Like, we're going to charge you out-of-state tuition, which is four times as much. We're going to make you ineligible for any state funding, any federal funding, so you can't get any, like, loans or anything like that, no grants. And somehow, my friends and I were like, no, we're going to fundraise. We're going to make this money happen. But of course, I, I cried a lot, you know? <laughs> I like thought I wasn't gonna make it many, many times, but we did at the end of the day, and it was, it seriously was a miracle. And what was your major as an undergrad? Was it Chicano studies or was it something yeah, else? Yeah, I double majored in- Wow, look at you. I know, I was doing the most. <laughs> I was like, if I'm gonna get kicked out, I'm gonna get kicked out with my head high and Thank do you. as many classes and get as the best grades that I can. You know, I was kind of like, on a revenge yeah. <laughs> attitude of like I'm gonna I'm gonna come out on top even though I'm not gonna I may not finish, but my major was political science and Chicana and Chicano studies. Oh, that's badass. And what what did you lean towards more? Initially, I was I <laughs> I laughed because I thought I wanted to be a politician. I wanted to be a legislator. That was like my dream as a kid because I wanted to change the laws. And I was like, oh, legislators write laws, so that's what I need to be. 
And then I got involved in politics in college and it was the worst experience. So then I was like, never mind, I'm, I'm gonna figure something else out. But I, because of that, I leaned heavily towards political science, but it was the most boring classes I've ever taken. Like the books were boring, the professors were boring. I had the worst time, it was like horrible. So then I would take, here and there, I would take like a Chicano studies, this class or that, and I loved it. Like I just, I would cry in class learning about like history, learning about myself. I had so many existential crises of like, about religion, about sexuality, about history, about family, like so many things were making sense because it was reflecting my own life and my history. And so I started taking more classes. I became a double major. And then in the end, I, I finally took one political science class that I loved, which was political ideology. That one was badass, like I loved it. But it was at the end, you know? So I relate to what the students who came in earlier and were saying like, I haven't taken classes that I really love and I'm already finishing and I'm sad because, you know, I just took this um, education class with you because that's how I felt about political science. Um, and so I love Chicano studies and it really changed my life. Yeah, it really touched my heart to hear you say that, oh, like I I was affected by the reading and stuff because the readings you give me, like the one in Oxnard, I grew up in Santa mm. Barbara and to know that there was segregation in 1934 and above, like for around 10 years or so, um, right next to my community, I'm like, whoa, like that's just insane that that happens. And I know people from Oxnard, so I'm like, wow, they're not too far removed from that. Yeah, you yeah. see, like, there's such an intimate connection with what our lives look like now to the history of that place, of, of places. And, you know, segregation happened all over the U.S. It happened in every school district. It happened in every city. And we really don't know what it was like for, for students and for children who went to those schools or to the boarding schools that we learned about. And when you think about what we're going through today, it's a direct result of the many years of segregation and the many years of, of um, educational inequity that has, you know, been part of the U.S. history since the beginning of time. Yeah, and it's kind of sad sometimes. I was talking to my brother about this class, and the way he responded was like, oh, that's a bunch of bullshit, like, you know— the reason I was getting in trouble was because I was like, I was, um, you know, hanging out with gangs and like doing all the stuff. I'm like, yeah, that is true. Like you were getting in trouble because you're doing <laughs> stupid shit. But, you know, it goes further than that. And he was just like not having, he's like, yeah, it's all a bunch of bullshit. Like Chicano studies is bullshit. I was uh -huh. like, all right, whatever, dude. Yeah. It's, you know what? I, my family's had similar reactions. Like I remember telling my brother also, like the reason you would get in trouble with the cops is not because you are bad. It's because they were literally surveilling you in our communities. And whatever you did happens in white communities, happens in all communities. But the fact that they have an eye on us all t at all times makes it like they're already criminalizing you before you've done anything. And I think when you tell somebody that, it kind of disempowers them a little. Like it, it, it's powerful because it makes you realize it wasn't your fault, but I think at the same time it disempowers you because it takes away choice from you. It says like, it happened to me, like I didn't choose it. And I think it's powerful for somebody like my brother or your brother to say like, no, I chose, I wanted to, to hang out with these people or do these things. 
But when you take the choice away, it makes them feel like victims, which no one likes to feel like a victim, Whoa. you know? Dang. So that's kind of how I've rationalized mm. it. Um, but you know what? Not everybody's a fan of Chicano studies. Yeah. It's something that in my home state has been banned and ethnic studies Whoa. in general um, are getting banned in many states and many K through 12 education systems in Texas at the university. So it's unfortunate. So you finish at Arizona State, and what do you, in, in that point, what do you what do you say to yourself? Like, what's next? Are you trying to pursue education at that point, or is it like, okay, now I need to like um, reconvene with myself? Like, what am I gonna do? Yeah, um, it was a wild journey. I felt like it was such a bumpy ride. So after I finished my undergrad at ASU, I was a little bit lost. I couldn't get a job, even though I had like double majored, I held these degrees and I was doing community organizing and I was part of nonprofits and doing like all these things. I was also a teacher at, for like parents and I did a bunch of things, but I couldn't use my degree because I didn't have a social security number to get a job. And so I remember that whole year I applied for graduate school. And I knew that I wanted to do a PhD, but even though I wasn't sure what that meant, like what you had to do in a PhD, um, but I knew I wanted to keep going because it was like safety that I could have while figuring out my legal status or figuring out where I could get a job. And so I spent that year applying. I got into a school that I never thought I would have any business attending, you know, my mentor from the university, he really encouraged me. He was like, you should go to get a PhD. You should become an anthropologist like me. And I was like, I don't know if I want to do that because I was like doing theater and like doing my community organizing. And he was like, you can go get a PhD in anthropology, but you have to stop doing all the other things you do. And I was like, I don't know. I love those things. So he did a really wise thing that instead of making me want to be like him or do what he thought was best, he let me figure it out. And he gave me an application to a one-year master's program of arts in education because I loved art, I loved education, policy, like I was interested in all those things. And what sh shocked me was that it was a master's program at Harvard. And I was like, me? Like, I could never go, I've never even said the word Harvard, you know, like let alone dream about being there. And he was like, you should apply. He literally paid for my applications and I got in, which to me was like, I thought I was gonna die. I thought it was the best day of my life. I called my mom, I called my family. My family, you know, had gone through so many struggles. We hadn't been together in many years because of immigration issues. And like my whole community was so happy for me. Like I've never experienced that kind of joy. Maybe probably later, you know, once I finished my PhD and, and did other things, but just feeling like I'm gonna make it maybe made me feel like my whole community was so overjoyed. Like it was on the news. My friends' moms were like calling me. It was just like the most amazing time. And I remembered that some mentors, my friend's grandma helped me pay for a flight so that I could go to the admitted students day. And 
I knew that I was going to have a really hard time paying for it because people think Harvard is fancy and they're going to just give you tons of money. But that wasn't the case for a master's program. But I kind of was just satisfied with getting accepted. I was like, it's okay if I don't come here. I'm just happy that me, somebody who has felt like Arizona was trying to push me out and like deport me and literally throw me in the trash. Like that's how I felt growing up there. I was like, at least Harvard accepted me and that's good enough. That's how I felt about UCLA. Really? Yeah, I got into UCLA and I know how hard that is, but yeah. And why'd you choose Santa Barbara? I think it's fear. I think for me it was fear because I, I, I don't I don't have anyone to kind of turn to to be like, oh, I just got accepted. Like my family was all happy, but who do you go to? You know, no one was like, oh, you should go. So I was like, I'll just go to UCSB. Not that UCSB is bad, but, it, you know, UCLA. Like I know, know. <laughs> UCSB is amazing. It's a beautiful, amazing place. But sometimes we do need somebody to push us over the edge when we're a little bit scared. Mm -hmm. And know? I didn't have that. I was I, I didn't know, like, what's the process like to moving to L.A.? Like, what would that look like? It was right after COVID. Like, mm. all of these things. And I, I don't know. I've been here all my life. So I still haven't even flown in a plane. You know? What? You've yeah. never flown on a mm -mm. plane? No. So. Wow. But yeah, your, your story. We got to take you on a flight. <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> so um, you were saying you, you get accepted. You're on the news. And I was going to yeah. say that, like, when that happens, it's like we all want. And exactly. you mentioned that in class. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's one of the things that is most beautiful about community and working collaboratively is that if one person makes it, it feels like we all like literally my my best friend has this saying and she's she always says we went to Harvard and she she got her master's at Arizona State and she's amazing and she's a badass in her field like she fundraises millions of dollars for environmental orgs and community work but she always says we went to Harvard and I'm like yeah we went there because you helped me get there and like me having a degree from there means my whole family had a degree from there my community had a degree from there so it was a, a collaborative like community win for sure yeah was it a big culture shock to yes. go there? I know, I'm sure it doesn't snow in Arizona, huh? No, I, yeah, I'd been in the snow a few times because if you go up north in Arizona, it's colder there. But like you, I hadn't been on a plane since I was like a little baby. So I got on a flight. I didn't even know how to get a, my seat. Like, I just didn't know the, the like culture around flying. It's like its own specific thing. And if you don't grow up doing that, you're like, what do, what do we do? Like, you know, so I remember getting there and getting off the flight and being like, whoa, like there are so many tall buildings. There are no like huge, um, like in Arizona, there's humongous streets, like kind of like in Texas, there's like six um, lanes, you know? And then there's like, you, it's not like a walking city. And so I got off in Boston, and this is really funny because if people know anything about Boston, it has like a history of like a lot of racism. And for me though, when I went to Boston, I was like, wow, I've never met so many nice people. And so I had this perception that Arizona to me was like a really racist, oppressive, like anti-immigrant, xenophobic, place because I felt like I was resisting that and like organizing against that my whole life. 
So I go from Arizona, where there's there's like kind of like Trumpy racism, to Boston, where everybody like they're still in like some racism, but it was it wasn't the same. So for me, it was a huge change. It was a huge shock. I couldn't believe like I had to walk to get groceries. I had to walk to do laundry. Like it was it was just a total different world to me. But I felt so grateful that literally so many people put me there. Like I had to fundraise like $70,000 to do a master's program because I couldn't get scholarships again. And I, I literally thought I wasn't gonna make it. Like I got accepted, that's cool, that's good enough for me. But my friends were like, no, we're gonna collect this money. And little by little, I started collecting funds, paying off like the first part of the year. And I made like a little documentary. There were some kids in uh, Phoenix who started making arts and crafts and then sold them and sent me the money. And like a church did this like food fundraiser, literally like people I had never met were doing fundraisers for me. And that's how I got there and that's how I graduated. That's so crazy. Mm -hmm. Man, that must have like felt so good. That's why I'm like, we did it. We all went to Harvard. We all like graduated and made it. Dang. And I think what you were saying about Boston and Arizona, like the difference, I feel like I've never been either, but just hearing stories about that, Arizona seems like they're very, it's an active role, you know, that they play because, you know, all the tensions. But in Boston, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of tension. So maybe it's not as active. Yeah, it's not close to the southern border like i feel like it's more arizona's overt and overt racism and boston is like kind of covert um but also like granted i'm not i'm like i'm not black and so there's different types of racism and um certain types of experiences that i wouldn't experience because i'm not black because i'm um like straight presenting because i'm cisgendered like so there's different different ways that you know discrimination can show up and racism can show up um but my experience was like wow i've never met so many nice people (laughs) and i'm I'm sad to like rush things but okay you finish there and then and then what Oh, and then I took a year off because I knew that I wanted to, well, I wanted to do a PhD, but I was offered this job that was like my dream job, which was to coordinate an art show at the university in Arizona. And I was like, amazing art, education, that's my dream, let's go. And I interviewed, and then the person who was in charge of that position uh, ended up leaving, so the position fell through. And I was so sad because that was like what I wanted to do. And then like literally one door closes, another one opens. Like I totally believe in that. Uh, Like you're meant to be doing what you're meant to be doing. Like there's a a saying in Spanish, like, si es pa ti, es pa ti, ni aunque, si es pa ti, ni aunque te pongas. Y si no es pa ti, aunque te pongas. Like I actually am butchering it, like I'm not even saying it right. But you know what I mean? Like if it's for you, it's for you. But um, I get a call from a mentor who was this guy who I invited to present his book at, at Harvard. And he was like, hey, I remember you saying that you were curious about a PhD. I work at a college in California and we do give funding for undocumented students. Like you should consider coming to get a PhD. And luckily my immigration status changed right as I was graduating from Harvard. So I told him like, I'm not undocumented anymore, but I'm still interested in these topics. 
And he was like, then as a mentor, it wouldn't feel right if you didn't apply to other schools to do a PhD. And I was like, no, 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 I'm cool. I'm just gonna go there and I'm gonna do that program. And he was like, no, I think you should apply. And I was like, fine, okay. I applied to UCLA, I applied to Berkeley, I applied to, uh, I think Stanford. And like, I don't even remember the other programs. The point was that I got into UCLA's first cohort of Chicana Chicano studies, PhDs. And that was a dream come true because I was like, I can work with this amazing artist that I've learned about. There's a really cool person doing amazing work on family separation and sociology. Like I just was like, that's an amazing place. And I've never imagined living in LA. So I just was so grateful that somebody told me, you know, this makes more sense. Um, and yeah, I started my PhD. It took me seven years to finish. And then I graduated in 2019 and did two postdocs after that. Um, and What's I, a postdoc? A postdoc is a temporary position you get after your PhD where you can do more training or work on research projects or your own research. But it's like a temporary stage between getting a job and, grad and finishing a PhD. And it just gives you like additional training. But some postdocs come with a job incentive. Mm. And I got one of those, which was literally like winning the lottery. And then I ended up at UCSB. And it's been my first year is just wrapping up. And looking back at all of that journey, I'm like, wow, I never would have thought I would be a professor at UC Santa Barbara living close to the ocean, driving. I mean, I don't live close, close to the ocean, but like, you know, like driving and being able to see mountains and beautiful like air that smells like flowers. That to me, coming from the projects in Phoenix and South Phoenix, I am like, it's a dream come true. Yeah, and it's kind of what you were saying, you want to go into like policies and stuff like that. In a way, the thing that you wanted to do like kind of change things i feel like you're influencing and changing people's lives here so you're still making an impact mm -hmm. and i would even argue to a deeper or personal level than it would have been like if you were to do like policies because it, it is and it is but it's not as personal you know what i'm saying yeah. yeah i feel like i was able to figure out how to do how to make the impact that i wanted to make through my work as a professor not only working with students but doing my research, like my research is on the experiences of immigrant children through the use of art. Wow. And my first book just came out in February. I was about to plug it. So please, <laughs> you go ahead and talk about it, the name, where to get it. Thanks. Um, yeah, it's called Drawing Deportation, Art and Resistance Among Immigrant Children. It was published by NYU Press. And it was a book that started in 2008 when I was an undergrad and I was working with kids who were telling me that their parents were missing, that they wanted to make a mural about it. And they didn't let us make a mural about it, but I asked them like, why is this important to you? And they literally gave me so many drawings and poems about their experiences. And I was like, somebody, everybody needs to see these drawings. It took me a long time to get, figure out how to understand those drawings. I went to do a master's in arts and ed so I could really think about that. I did a PhD to redo a study about this and did a dissertation about it in California. And then finally wrote the book and it just came out. And honestly, that I feel like is the biggest honor of my life. 
it like makes me emotional to say like I had this vision of bringing justice maybe in my own way like justice meaning visibility and not being able to ignore the experiences of those children and it took me 15 years but I'm so happy that I finally am able to give them those stories and say like what you went through and what you experienced is not for nothing it's not in vain it's so that more people will be aware of this and we won't let it happen again yeah thank you i can't wait to read it and are there any closing um remarks you want to make uh, or words? you know i think the the thing that i would think about a lot of times was how much i wanted to give up like i wanted to give up way back when when i couldn't finish my undergraduate degree when I was like, I don't have a place to live. I'd rather just get a job and pay for my cell phone, like my $40 like cricket cell phone bill, you know? <laughs> but I wanted to quit so many times, like even during the master's when I couldn't find the funding or during the PhD when it was so hard or when I got the PhD and I couldn't find a job, like I wanted to quit so many times, but I think I always remembered the responsibility that I felt and also the gratitude that I felt to so many people who gave me time, money, energy, their blessing, their prayers, like their good energy to for my path to continue forward. Like they really believed in me and it made me believe in myself. And so I just would just offer to people, if you're struggling with what you dream of, if you're struggling with what you know is right and what you want to do and what you want to see in life, just keep going one step at a time, like one day, one hour at a time because I feel like if we stay consistent and stay in community, we'll make it. Heck yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Such a big honor to have you. It's a, all The honor is truly all mine. I'm so happy to support this and be part of it. And I, I'm really honored, truly. Heck yeah. Thank you. Yeah.